So ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. Welcome to the Wellness Cast. I'm Joe Bankman, professor at Stanford Law School and also clinical psychologist. My partner in these podcasts is Sarah Weinstein, lawyer turned therapist and external director of the Wellness Project here. Our guest today is Ann Bradford, author of a new book, Positive Professionals, Creating High-Performing, Profitable Firms Through the Science of Engagement. Ann was a partner for 18 years at Morgan, Lewis, and Bacchius, uh, a big, prestigious national law firm, and is in the process of earning a PhD in positive organizational psychology. Ann also served as editor-in-chief and co-author of the ABA's 2017 report, The Path to Lawyer Wellbeing. Sarah, when you first suggested Anne as a guest, my heart sank. And I'm guessing that's because you knew that Anne was the editor of the ABA's recent well-being report and you were afraid what you might find in there? Exactly. I've read a million reports and they all seem to be the same. Lots of description of the problem, followed by a summary description of two or three innovative, promising approaches, and then they end with a clarion call for action. Yes, and, and the suggestions often are very broad, not specific, and not particularly helpful. But then there's Anne. Welcome, Anne. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm excited to have the opportunity to talk to you guys. That's great, because we're excited that you're here. Welcome, Anne. One of our goals for the podcast is to normalize the difficult emotions we all experience. And to make that real, we like to start by asking our guests to share a hard moment. And I know you were in a law firm, in a big law firm for 18 years. I would imagine there were some hard moments in there along the way. Uh, For sure. And my practice was employment litigation. I represented companies who had been sued for discrimination and harassment, those, those kinds of things. Um, and so it was, you know, individual employees that were the plaintiffs in my cases and who I took their depositions and asked for their records. Um, and the moment where this really I had to make a decision about, you know, the kind of lawyer that I was going to be was in a deposition with a plaintiff in a disability accommodation case. He was a younger man who was had become a paraplegic um, a number of years earlier. He'd had an accident when he was young. Uh, that put him in a wheelchair, um, but he had gone on to become a successful engineer. And he now was requesting to stay at home because it had become too difficult for him to get into work. And so my job is, you know, representing the employer uh, was to really understand his request, uh, understand why it was after all these years, he could no longer come into work because it wasn't generally allowed. Engineers needed to be uh, on site to do their work. And so I start asking him questions as I always did. And as the conversation unfolded, it became clear that the problem was a very personal and private one and had to do with what he needed to do to use the restroom. And, um, the questions became uh, very personal about he would have to physically move his own bowels 
Uh, and just, again, just like very private and I'll, I'll just sort of leave it at that. Uh, and there, in my younger days, I think what I would have done was to continue on the path of that questioning without acknowledging the human moment we were having. Uh, and just, you know, sometimes it's useful to your case to make someone feel uncomfortable because the harder the litigation is, maybe the quicker you can get it over. Uh, and as the conversation continued, um, I finally just stopped. There was so much going on in my own head about the human that was sitting in front of me and these questions that I was having to ask him that were coming from a complete stranger. Um, and so I finally just took a pause in the deposition and said, I'm sorry that I have to ask you these questions. Like, I know these are private and this must be very difficult for you. And I just want you to understand that I am just trying to do my job. I am trying to be as respectful as I can. And just really just taking a moment so that he understood that I was seeing him um, as a person uh, and, and trying to be more respectful in my questioning. And I think from that moment on, I was a different lawyer. And what happened in the case? Doesn't that make you somewhat of a worse lawyer for your client in the case? Yeah, I think that's it's a great question. And it's the um, struggle with humanity versus being, you know, the good aggressive lawyer. And I can say what happened in this case uh, is it ended up being incredibly beneficial that he that moment really helped grow the respect between the plaintiff and myself. And, you know, weeks later, when we ended up in mediation, as most of these cases do, he trusted me. Uh, and he actually asked me to come into the room uh, toward the end of the mediation because there were parts about our negotiation that he trusted me more on than his own lawyer. And he didn't want to sign until I came into the room and had a conversation with him. And I think that trust started that day um, in his deposition. And we ended up having a really phenomenally reasonable settlement uh, in the case. And so I think uh, in, in many instances, we are wrong to think the, the most aggressive approach is going to be the most successful. And that is such a beautiful, beautiful example and sets forth, just as you said, that often there's a tension between being a good lawyer and a good human being. There doesn't have to be. You can be both. And in the cases where you are, you often get a better result and can make a nice connection in the process. Yeah, I think that's right. And I want to go to your book now. Uh, the title mentions the science of engagement. And part one is called, What is Engagement and Why Should You Care? I'll bite. Can you answer that question for me? <laughs> yes. So, you know, there are kind of uh, scientific, more stuffy definitions of, an engage of engagement, but the best way to understand it is engagement are the thoughts, feelings, and energy we have when we're really at our best. It's sort of like job satisfaction on steroids, uh, and it occurs when like we're, we're totally present and energized and ready to invest in our work every day. Um, and as far as like, why should you care? You know, many studies have linked higher engagement uh, in in the workforces to positive business outcomes, uh, you know, indicators of success like better performance, higher pro productivity, retention of talent, better customer uh, service and satisfaction, profitability. 
And what research has found, Gallup in particular is a, is a big organization that does a lot of work in en engagement. And what they have found is that the American workforce has only about 30% of the people engaged. Uh, and so that shows that there really is a lot of room for improvement in this area. Uh, and it could potentially have a lot of upside, really good benefits if we can raise that rate. And let's say that you're talking to a managing partner of a firm. Let's say it's a big law firm. She's concerned about attrition uh, and she wants a good life for uh, her lawyers and asks you, what are the top three things I can do? What do you tell her? Yeah, I think it's it's a good question. It's a kind of question I get a lot. The firm was really interested in what was going on uh, in their environment and how to boost engagement. You'd want to know more. But there are, you know, of course, there's there's some basic fundamental things that any firm can do to boost engagement. And one of them is is exactly um, what, what led us to this, Joe, which is leader development. Uh, in most firms, Lawyers get elevated, uh, especially large, large firms, lawyers get elevated for their client development successes and not really their ability, their ability to lead and develop people. So this is a real area of opportunity for, mo for most firms. Um, and this is so because leaders, especially direct supervisors, are so important to the experience that people have uh, in, their, in their work environments. The direct supervisor has the biggest impact on workers' experience. They drive something like 70% uh, of the perceptions of the workplace. Uh, and leaders do this because they, they can influence the way we think about our work. So things like influencing whether we see our work as socially valuable, whether they articulate goals and values that energize and inspire us, whether they feel help us feel that we have a sense of belonging. These are all things that leaders can do to help us feel engaged and a sense of meaning and belonging. But unfortunately, many partners in firms, it has been my experience, um, still use a command and control style of leadership. So basically they're, you know, they expect people to do what they say because there's going to be either rewards or punishments. And that's kind of their motivational theory. What are the other two or three things the firm can do, Anne? So I would say the, the second one uh, is really helping people feel that their work matters. So enhancing the experience that my work matters. Um, so that would be things like uh, helping people understand the social impact of their work, that it's not only about making money, but also about client care and helping their communities. And I think the, the third thing is, is related but different, and that's really boosting the experience of feeling that I matter, that I'm valued, my talents are valued, uh, and I'm a valuable person. And one thing I see a lot in clients in my private practice are young associates who want to take a risk in their firm to grow, but they're afraid to because of what they perceive as a somewhat inhospitable environment. They're afraid if they make one mistake, their reviews are going to be very negative. They might not, you know, people might not want to give them work. They might ultimately not become a partner. And so I have to say there was a sentence in your book I was very surprised to see, but that I love. And it's that the quote, since perfection is not possible, psychological safety is the best option. And would you talk about ways for firms to create psychological safety for their associates? 
Sure. The, the core of psychological safety really is trust, um, that we trust that others will give us the benefit of the doubt, uh, you know, if, if something goes wrong or if we're not perfect. And so a few ways that firms and, and leaders and all of us can help develop that are things like when someone poses a question or a concern, how do we respond? Are we defensive and sarcastic or are we um, open to the suggestions and wanting to know more? Do firms emphasize learning over perfection? Um, that's a really important point of understanding that we're, that we're all learners and we will make mistakes. I love the phrase emphasize learning over perfection. Yeah, I, I love that that phrase too. And another thing I loved about this part of the book was where you addressed a skeptic of this, which I, I feel like there will be a lot of them. But and you, what you said was that, you know, if there's psychological safety, someone's going to be more likely to report a small mistake and prevent that from becoming a crisis. So an error is not going to become a crisis if someone feels safe enough to go tell a partner. Right. And the idea is that errors will be caught earlier because people will feel safe um, to, to raise the issues and find someone to get some help before it really becomes a crisis. And I want to turn now to what the associate or the attorney can do. Now I'm an associate in big law or small law. What what are the top three things I can do to make my work more satisfying? Three things that any associate can look, can look at is first, before you even um, get to your firm, really thinking about whether this is the best fit. Um, organizational person fit is an enormous contributor to engagement. If you feel that this organization uh, has your same values uh, and would promote your interests. It's very important to think about and not just going to the firm that's going to pay you the most money. And I would say the second thing is, is really being um, mindful about mindsets. Uh, in the book, I talk about a number of different styles of mindsets, growth mindset, stress mindset, optimistic mindset. And really looking into what those things mean and understanding that developing our mindsets uh, is as important as developing ourselves physically, of, of exercising, of really um, understanding that our mindsets shape our perceptions, which have a big impact on our well-being and stress response. Can you and tell me about one of those mindsets, like growth mindset? Sure. Um, growth mindset is related to what we were just talking about in psychological safety. So it's the idea of approaching our work as learners and not expecting perfection from ourselves. People with growth mindsets believe that abilities can grow and are flexible. And this is in contrast to people with fixed mindsets who think basically ability and intelligence is fixed at birth. So that if you make a mistake or aren't perfect, what it means is that you're a deficient human being that can't ever grow. And that is um, very stressful and undermines performance where people who have the growth mindset and believe that we can grow and learn, when something, when they make a mistake or something bad happens, they just see it as information. Oh, that's an area where I learn more. And I think that's, um, growth mindset in particular is something that law firms uh, can, they have an opportunity to really expand that because I think perfection is what, associates think they need to do to be able to succeed. And it's really not the best way to support performance. Um, the growth mindset really is. 
I think of my colleague uh, across the quad here, Carol Dweck, and the work she's done with growth mindsets. So for listeners that are interested in that, if you look up D-W-E-C-K, you'll find some great stuff. Yes, I noted another helpful sentence from the book where you say that people want to feel a sense of both impact and recognition. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure, that's what I was referring to a little earlier when I talked about both my work matters uh, and I matter. Uh, Those correspond to those ideas. So my work matters is that people want to feel like they're making a difference in the world. So when law firms are communicating values that are only about revenue generation, that can really kill people's sense of meaningfulness and motivation. Uh, and the, the sense of being valued or I matter, uh, that's the sense that we feel that we have talents that are valued and we're able to use uh, and that we're respected in the workplace. And these, these two things that I'm valued and my work is valuable are really the heart of engagement, of having those experiences at work is what make us feel energized and really wanting to invest in our work. And so I want to pick up on this. Now I'm the partner at the law firm and I want to make people feel good. My first impulse is to say, we made all this money. Here's the profits per partner. And here's what we've been able to pay associates. And here's a chart that shows we make more than two-thirds of the competitive firms, and we pay more than two-thirds of the competitive firms, you're telling me that's not what I should say? That is not the most motivational uh, value for most people. I think it's fine to say that because people like to feel pride in their organization and their organization is doing well and is successful. But if the message stops there, you're going to lose a lot of people. I think that this is at the heart of a lot of the turnover, the attrition rate that we're seeing, is that people want more than that. They want to feel that they're involved in something that is helping their communities, that is really about client care, that's supporting and helping each other. And when all the messages are about money, uh, it undermines the sense of both that I matter and that my work matters. And so I'm not saying not to talk about profit and success. Again, people want to feel proud of their organizations, but I am saying that it would benefit firms to broaden their values and the way they communicate their values. And so it's more than just making money. And even talking about profit, from what you're telling me, Anne, if you're talking about that, it's appreciated not because I'm paying you a lot of money, it's appreciated in large part because we're successful. It, exactly. And at least one indicator of success, both for the firm and for individuals, uh, is financial success. That is one way that we that we know that we're being successful in growing and developing. And so those are important. They just shouldn't be the only thing we focus on. What you're saying definitely bears out in practice. I see associate after associate, you know, at the top of the financial spectrum, they're at the highest paying firms, but they are not happy. um, And they're consistently thinking about leaving. So I really appreciate that point that you made in the book. So in Silicon Valley, a firm might emphasize how they help clients change the world. That's a great idea. Yes. 
And for some, it's it's hard. I mean, you can think of a lot of different firms and the clients that they represent, and it can be hard to frame it. Um, but usually we can find a way. And also, it's not only that kind of an impact. There's all kinds of ways that we can make um, work feel more meaningful. It's like even connecting with your clients on a human basis. Are you helping them personally and professionally? What about the people around you, the partners, the associates, the staff that you work with? Are you helping them to have um, better lives and uh, support their dreams? You know, I'm reminded of my work with Vatsan. And if you're in the armed forces, one of the key motivators is you're there for people in your platoon or your group or in your company. And that's what's going to lead you to put down your life in addition to the broader interests of country and family. Yeah, I, I think that's right. The connection to our colleagues and the people around us uh, and that sense of belonging is a really important driver of engagement. Yeah, when I think of the clients in my practice who like their jobs, and I have a lot of them actually, um, who are coming to me for other reasons, it is people who found a way to connect with colleagues and clients and to find that, um, as you mentioned in the book, that their values are consistent with going what's happening in their workplace. And it's so nice to hear about some of the positive ways that we can work on our firms. I feel like the positive of law firms are is a little bit underplayed. So it's really been a pleasure to talk with you. Typically, we like to sign off by asking our guests about a wellness practice that, that you use to thrive in your own life and career. But before we do that, Joe, I just want to ask about our technique from last time. And the guests were um, your friends, wonderful Phil Stutz and Barry Michaels, therapists and the best-selling authors of The Tools and a new book, Coming Alive. And instead of telling us about a wellness technique, Barry actually guided you through an experience of the Black Sun Tool from the first book, which had us imagine a time when we wanted something that we couldn't or maybe shouldn't have, and then experience the feelings of deprivation that followed. Uh, Joe, did you use this Black Sun Tool to help you, help you get through a tough moment of wanting something? Did you become the sun? Well, I don't know if I became the sun, but I definitely tried to use the tool. As you know, Sarah, I'm a little bit of a compulsive planner. I've got a class coming up in a couple hours. We're going over 16 things. And I know we're going over 16 things because my notes have 16 Roman numerals on it. The problem with this kind of planning is you can't plan everything. And when I have things that I can't plan, I get a little anxious. And I decided to try to do the tool on what if I couldn't plan so much? And I just had to deal with the unplanned. And how'd it go for you? I think it's I think it's gone well. One thing Barry said that really touched me and resonated with me is to look upon deprivation as an opportunity for growth. And for some reason that works for me. And I say, you know, I'm just gonna have to wing it. And that's going to lead me somewhere new. And that is kind of a mantra that's helped me in the past week. I, you know, I have to agree. I didn't actually try the black sun tool, which honestly is probably my own limited creative ability. Um, but I loved Phil's sentence that deprivation is creation. And I, similar to you, I use that a lot in moments when I 
wanted something and um, or we were having thoughts that I didn't want to have or it was some issue like that, I that sentence popped into my head, deprivation is creation. And then I, after that sentence popped in, I noticed what feelings I was having or what thoughts I was having afterwards. And that's when Phil talked about it was you could use it as a flashlight to see inside yourself and just become curious about your own internal workings. And so I found that very, very helpful. So Anne, how about you? Do you have a wellness technique that you use to help you thrive in what I'm sure is a very busy life and career? I have many. <laughs> the, the one that I've been using a lot lately, uh, I, I speak a lot. And so the one I've been using a lot lately, I talk about in the book, it's the stress mindset activity. So what this is about, if you're going into some kind of a performance activity, like speaking or even or taking a test, but some situation where you start feeling jittery because you want to perform well. In that kind of a situation, you can have either a threat response uh, or a challenge response. And the response you have actually influences your physiological reaction and the chemical cocktail of hormones that can either support or undermine performance. So multiple studies have shown if you start feeling jittery like that, you can let yourself go down the road of feeling anxious and thinking about all the ways you're going to fail and look stupid. Uh, and that affects your physiological response and will actually ensure that result that you might not do as well as you wanted. On the other hand, if you tell yourself, either to yourself or, or out loud, I'm excited, I'm excited, I'm excited, it tricks your brain into thinking your jittery, your jittery feelings aren't about being anxious. It's about getting to do something that's important and exciting to you. And that shifts yourself into a challenge mindset where you have this different physiological response that supports performance. And so I am saying I'm excited to myself a lot, uh, either if just feeling that um, I'm having time conflicts or I'm about to go into a speaking engagement. I am often saying to, to myself, I'm excited, I'm excited, I'm excited. Um, and I really think it works for me. I'm excited instead of I'm scared or threatened or stressed. Exactly. And making it conscious, because too often when we're going into those situations we're, we're there are things going on in our bodies and we're not paying attention to them. And so if you ignore it, you are more likely to have a stress response. Or if you take a moment to re be really mindful about, oh, I'm feeling my stomach is tightening. My, my palms are getting a bit sweaty. I feel that happening. Oh, that's because I'm about to do something that's important and exciting. This is exciting. I want to do another shout out here, which is to Alia Crum, who's another professor in psychology who's done some terrific work establishing and putting forth the studies that have led to this excitement versus stress contrast. There's also a Kelly McGonigal's book, The Upside of Stress, which I, which I enjoyed. Yes, those are two of my heroes. <laughs> and thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. It was such a pleasure, Anne. Thanks so much for being here. For anyone who would like to access the resources from this podcast, including how to find Anne's book, Positive Professionals, which I highly recommend. We were only able to cover just a very small amount of what's in the book here on the podcast, so please go out and find the book. You can do that on our website at www.law.stanford.com. Dot edu backslash wellness project and we'll also have a link to the book but we're also going to have a discount code on there so please check it out thanks so much for listening and please tune in again next time for another episode of the wellness cast